0: Welcome to the Books and Bites podcast. Each month, we bring you book recommendations and discuss the bites and beverages to pair with them. I'm Carrie Green, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Michael Cunningham and Jacqueline Cooper. Hello. Hello. Today, we're talking about books set in or about a place you'd like to visit, one of the prompts on the Books and Bites Bingo Reading Challenge. So what are some of the places you all want to visit?
1: Well, I want to visit Paris and I want to visit Italy and Germany, and I'd really like to go to Egypt too. So, this was actually, yeah, this was actually my favorite prompt so far. Mm -hmm. Because I was thinking about all the places I want to go and all the books there are to read. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, I was like, where don't I want to go? This is like (laughs) a hard, you know, I'd love to go to Australia. The only place. I've been outside of the U.S. is Argentina.
0: that's a pretty, really? Wow. And that
2: was awesome. So I would love to go back there or anywhere in South America. Uh, Europe, for sure. I would love to go to Scotland and England. Uh, Ireland, too. Yeah. I'd love to go to Ireland. Japan. I would love to go visit there. Uh, How about you, Carrie.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would love to go any of those places too. I I have been to Scotland, and this summer, my husband and I are actually going to England. So I used this prompt to do some reading about England. So that that is pretty exciting. They, you know, I've read before that. Sometimes the best part of travel is the anticipating <laughs> the travel yes. and like doing the reading and the research and all of that stuff. So and it really has kind of increased my enjoyment, I think, as I'll talk about when we get to our book. We're gonna be walking the Thames Path, which is a a national trail in England. We're gonna be walking part of it. So the book that I read takes place along the Thames and the part that we're going to be walking. So, so that was pretty cool. And I haven't I haven't done this yet, but we're going we are also going to be visiting Jane Austen's house. Oh, wow. So, I really want to do some rereading of some Jane Austen before we go. Yeah, so it's it's fun to kind of immerse yourself in the world a little bit before you go and, you know, you can travel there. Via the books, if you if you can't actually get there, so so that's fun too.
2: I love that. Like if you're reading a book and you go to that city or place, and you're like, oh
0: yeah, I remember that from that.
2: That mm-hmm. character
0: was doing that in this
2: place.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: Some of the descriptions in in some of the books
1: are just fascinating. Mm-hmm. Just like, oh, I want to go there so bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Oh yeah.
0: Well, hopefully, we'll um, inspire our listeners to read about some new places as well.
1: The book I'm reviewing for this month's prompt, a book set in or about somewhere you'd like to visit, is The Paper Girl of Paris by Jordan Taylor. The Books and Bites prompt reminded me of how much I love reading the works of Victoria Holt. As a teen, I read many of Victoria Holt's novels. Holt was a prolific writer who wrote suspenseful historical romances. And if you're unfamiliar with Holt's work, her writing is often compared to Daphne Meurs, who authored the gothic novel Rebecca, which Alfred Hitchcock adapted into a movie. Victoria Holt's main characters were often young women who traveled abroad seeking work or adventure, Her work's settings are in exciting places like Egypt, Luxembourg, England, and France. Her novel, The King of the Castles, French setting, caused me to want to travel there. The setting is why I chose to read The Paper Girl of Paris. Jordan Taylor's writing reminded me of Holt's in the following ways. Both Holt and Taylor wrote historical romances set abroad. Both descriptions of places they write about help you imagine you are there. Also, like Holtz, Taylor's writing has a strong female character with lots of determination to uncover the secrets of the past. The paper of Girl of Paris has two strong female characters. It is two stories set 70 years apart. The protagonists are Alice, whose story setting is in modern day France, and Adeline, whose story takes place in 1940s occupied France. The chapters alternate between Alice's voice and Adeline's voice. Alice serves as a narrator. Through her investigations, we learn about Adeline's life. The author begins with Alice's story. Alice and her family are traveling to Paris for the summer. However, it's not a vacation. Alice's grandmother, Chloe, who passed away two months earlier, has left her a mysterious apartment in Paris that no one knew about. When Alice and her parents see the apartment, they realize that no one's been in there for 70 years. Everything was just as her grandmother's family left it at the end of World War II. Alice realizes she does not know much about her grandmother's past. It was like her grandmother didn't have a life before marrying her grandfather. She knows nothing about her great-grandparents, let alone what happened to them. What's even more surprising is that her grandmother had a sister whom no one knew about. Diane, Alice's mother, is distraught that not only did she not know about the apartment or about her mother's sister, Adeline, upon realizing that her mother, Chloe, kept so many secret things about her past, she refuses to enter the apartment. Diane does not seem herself since her mother's passing. Her mother's death has left her listless and despondent. Alice worries that her mother is not getting the help she needs. She feels that not facing the problem and pretending nothing is wrong is not helping her mother. Diane withdraws increasingly more and more from her husband and daughter. She doesn't even seem to be enjoying spending time in Paris with her family, let alone being interested in what happened to her mother's family. But Alice is determined to learn more about her long-lost family. Alice finds Adeline's diary and hopes it will provide her with some answers. When she meets a cute Parisian boy at a bakery, he offers to help her translate the diary. They also find pictures of Adeline with Nazis and pictures with resistance fighters. The journal supplies some answers, but it doesn't really answer the question of who Adeline was. Alice wants to find some of the people Adeline wrote about, hoping they can help find out what happened to her lost family. Where did her great-grandparents go after the war? Alice doesn't even know if Adeline is still living, let alone whether her aunt was a resistance fighter or a Nazi sympathizer. The author does an excellent job of telling the story of occupied France and how different individuals dealt with the war to survive. I like how the diary provides a smooth transition from past to present with each girls telling their story in alternating chapters. This fascinating narrative provides a compelling glimpse of past and present day Paris. However, Adeline's story is the most compelling. Alice's story is a lot less fleshed out, but to be fair, I believe the author intended the real story to be Adeline's. After all, the novel's title is The Paper Girl of Paris, which was the first job Adeline had when working for the resistance movement. I believe Alice's character is used more as a writing technique than a main character. However, the author does try to hold our attention for both stories by giving both girls similar components. Each has a romance with a cute Parisian boy. Each has a parent struggling with mental illness. There does seem to be an underlying plot about depression and anxiety, which could provide a framework for discussing mental illness. However, the mental illness plotline does not seem as flushed out in Adeline's story. But what I liked best about the book was the author's message in both books that it is important to have open, honest relationships and deal with issues instead of pretending the problems don't exist. I think if you're looking for a historical novel, this might be an excellent choice. But you should be aware that it does touch on the atrocities of war and the impact it had on its people. For my bites, I thought a good pairing would be croissants with chocolate and coffee. I can envision Alice eating her croissant in the small bakery run by the cute Parisian boy Paul's sister. I found this recipe for French croissants at The Simply Luxurious Life. Inspired by an episode from Baking with Julia Child, the blogger translated this recipe by French baker esther mcmanus she added some adaptions and notations from the pbs show on the recipe here at the simply luxurious com french croissants traditional paint all chocolate if you're interested you can find the original recipe in julia child's cookbook baking with julia
2: that sounds delicious it does i mean being croissants and coffee
1: yeah Sounds Yum.
2: Perfect pair. And,
0: and chocolate. I yeah. mean, <laughs> you can't go wrong with no. <laughs> It's funny
1: in the story, she orders this coffee, and they keep giving her these little tiny cups of coffee. And she's like, why are they giving me this strong coffee? And she can't figure out how to order it. <laughs> then she finally figures out that she has to order it American coffee, and then she actually gets a real cup, a big cup of coffee.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so she's getting little shots of espresso. Yeah, <laughs>
0: and she's like, "What?" <laughs> so at least the chocolate helped, she said. <laughs> and that was a YA novel.
1: Yes, it, it was a uh-huh. YA novel. I, I guess I didn't say that, but
0: no, it sounds it sounds good. Paris is one of those kind of romantic sounding cities that i think lots of people want to go to yeah
1: and she did do some some, describing a lot of scenes i just didn't really have time to put all that in there so
0: well that's why you read the book that's right (laughs) (laughs) they want to read about all the
1: beautiful places in paris
2: place I've been wanting to visit for years now is Mexico City. Us as Americans probably don't realize it, but it's a huge bustling metropolitan city teeming with culture, history, and a world class food scene. The city is always being mentioned as a possible site for expansion teams for the NFL and NBA. And my recommendation for this month only makes me want to visit it all that more. My recommendation is Velvet Was the Night by Sylvia Moreno-Garcia. This tense noir is set during the turbulent 1970s in Mexico City where student protests are clashing in the streets with violent factions and political unrest reign supreme with political dissenters constantly disappearing. We follow a bored and lonely secretary named Mayte, who lives in her own little world obsessing over music and romance comics, usually fantasizing about being her own very own romance comic herself. When her neighbor, Lenora, a local student, asks her to watch her cat for a few days and never returns, Miete decides to track down her whereabouts. Simultaneously, we meet Elvis, a gun-for-hire who works for Elmago, a well-connected leader for the paramilitary group The Hawks, and is assigned to track down Lenora and the photographs she may or may not have. Even though he's a criminal, Elvis isn't a fan of all the violence that surrounds him and would rather listen to his rock and roll albums. As Maite descends into Lenora's world of KGB spies, government agents, secret police, dissident students, and hitmen who are all after Lenora, her path collides with Elvis's and together they must navigate a dangerous world and find Lenora before the others do. This slow burn noir, while full of intrigue, really shines with its two main characters, Maite and Elvis, who are flawed, quirky, and complex. Maite is essentially a 30-year-old spinster who has a terrible body image of herself, hating how she looks, but she... Gets little side gigs, house-sitting for people in her apartment complex, and she can't help herself from stealing little trinkets from their apartments. Then there's Elvis, who's not a thug like the other criminals he works with. He's a kind kid who's just been dealt a bad hand in life. He likely has dyslexia and has made it a point to learn a new word every day as he waits in safe houses and sits out on stakeouts. Even if you're not well-versed in the politics and violence of 1970s Mexico City, Moreno-Garcia does a great job of getting us caught up on the historical details without bogging us down exposition and info dumps. And another thing I really love is the incorporation of music into the novel, which a lot of it was considered subversive in Mexico during this time, with covers of popular music in the United States like the Mamas and the Papas, Presley, and Nancy Sinatra to name a few. There's a playlist that's available on Spotify and listed at the back of the book definite five-star read for me i highly recommend this for any fans of historical fiction suspense or noir i paired this with a recipe from the my mexico city kitchen by Gabriela camara called huevos a la mexicana it costs for eight to twelve eggs homemade salsa there's a recipe for it earlier in the book soft chivre butter cilantro and avocados i haven't made it yet still trying to track down some chivre but how can it not be delicious
0: yeah that sounds good
2: I mean, I love what the web is, Rancheros, where you get yeah. the scrambled eggs mixed with salsa. Mm. But if mean, you put some shivering in there, shoo,
0: that mm-hmm. it's got
2: to be good.
1: Yeah. I love your review that the book incorporated music and food. Yeah. And it just sounds fascinating.
2: Mm-hmm. I, once I saw the playlist in the back, I went to Spotify and got it. And so while I was reading it and, you know, like on a car ride home, I would listen to the music. And it really immerses you into mm-hmm. that world because you listen to the same songs they listen to. Which oh. is, I mean, I really like that when books do that, incorporate yeah. music into it. Yeah, it kind of adds another dimension.
0: Carrie, do you incorporate music into your writing? Do you mean like when when I'm writing, or like I
1: know you've written a few books, and so I was just curious.
0: Well, occasionally I write about music, or like a song lyric will inspire a poem. But yeah, I think it's a little bit different writing poetry than, than maybe writing nonfiction or fiction. But it's still an important part of, mm-hmm. like, you know, because my husband is a musician. I know. You know, that's a important part of, like, being around other artists and getting inspired. A lot of
1: times, don't they make songs that were originally poetry? Sometimes that happens, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. I think... Even like operas and things sometimes come from poems. You know, like Emily Dickinson, you can you mm-hmm. can supposedly sing an Emily Dickinson poem, any Emily Dickinson poem to the tune of Amazing Grace because of the meter oh, and, the, yeah. and the rhyme that she used, <laughs> which is a fun, you know, fun party trick. <laughs> yeah, that's really neat. <laughs> But a lot of contemporary poetry, you know, is not really is not rhymed anymore or or even uses a meter. So, so it's a little bit a little bit different. Mm-hmm. My book is Once Upon a River by Diane Setterfield which takes place in the late 19th century along the western part of the Thames River in England, which, as I mentioned earlier, just happens to be the portion of the Thames path that my husband and I will be walking this June, from its head in Kimball to Oxford. The novel begins when a drenched and severely injured man appears at the Swan, an old inn in Radcot. He is carrying a small child who is so lifeless, the people at the inn at first believe she's a puppet. The man falls unconscious as soon as he enters the door, and the innkeepers send for Rita, a nurse. The villagers believe the girl to be dead, as does Rita when she arrives. After tending to the man, Rita confirms that the girl isn't breathing and has no pulse. But while Rita is examining her, the girl, who appears to be about four years old, wakes up. She is either unable or unwilling to speak, perhaps because of the trauma she's endured. The villagers assume the unconscious man is her father, but when he regains consciousness, he says he found her only after having an accident in his boat. Thus begins the mystery at the heart of this book. Who is this girl, and why did she appear to come back from the dead? To whom does she belong? Soon, three different families lay claim to her. The Vons, a couple whose daughter Amelia disappeared two years ago. The Armstrongs, who believe she may be Alice, a missing granddaughter they only recently learned about. And Lily White, a 42-year-old woman who believes, improbably, that the girl is her sister, Anne. There is something about the girl that makes everyone, whether or not they claim her, feel responsible for her and love her, including nurse Rita and the man who found her, Henry Daunt, a widower and photographer. The book tells Henry and Rita's stories, as well as the stories of the potential family members and their missing girls, as the community tries to uncover who she actually is. Although it took some time to introduce the full cast of characters, some of whom are more sympathetic than others, I found all the stories compelling. The book meanders and twists like the river, but the mystery of the girl's identity kept me wanting to read more. She is a little unreal, as if she's a being who lives between two worlds. That permeability between life and death is reflected in the stories the locals tell about her, and about Quietly, a ferryman who they believe picks up people in danger along the river. Sometimes, Quietly takes them to safety, as he apparently did with Henry Dawn. But if it's the person's time, he carries them beyond, to the other side of the river. Once Upon a River contains a special blend of magic, myth, history, and science. Like many of my favorite novels, it's lyrical, descriptive, and has a strong sense of place. It was especially fun to look up the place names in my Thames Path guidebook and know that I'd be seeing those places in real life very soon. I initially began listening to the audiobook, but I found it a little hard to follow at first. However, I enjoyed the narrator's performance so much that once I knew who the characters were, I continued to both read the physical book and to listen to it on my commute and while doing chores, which made the novel feel even more immersive. One of the sweetest moments in the book happens when Anthony Vaughn serves the girl what the British call toast soldiers, toast that's been sliced into thin rectangles for breakfast. Quote, she ate with concentration in a self-contained reverie until an overgenerous blob of marmalade fell from the edge of the toast onto the tablecloth, and she glanced up to see whether he had seen it. Her eyes, that Helena called green and he called blue, and that were gravely fathomless, met his, and he smiled at her, a small, kindly, undemanding smile. There came a slight Fleeting twitch of her mouth in return, and though it had happened a dozen times before, he still felt his heart lurch at it, unquote. A nice slice of sourdough heaped with butter and marmalade would make a great snack to pair with Once Upon a River. Or try making another popular British childhood breakfast, dippy eggs, soft-boiled eggs with toast soldiers that you dip into the eggs. We'll link to the recipe on our blog.
1: Great. I'd like to have some toast soldiers. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> right about now, actually. <laughs> yeah, There's something about toast that always smells good, oh, doesn't yeah. it? Oh, yeah,
2: it does. <laughs> does the does the ending does have a twisty ending, or do you?
0: It does have a pretty twisty ending. Yeah, so I don't want to. Yeah. I don't want to give any spoilers away. You do get some some resolution mm-hmm. with some of the missing girls. But some of it is left up to uh, okay. mystery.
2: I kind of like that.
1: Yeah. I like the fact that there's so many different stories in there. That sounds mm-hmm. fascinating. Even though maybe it'd be hard to I have to write the characters down. To
0: <laughs> yeah, it was just, like I said, On audio is a little bit difficult at first, especially, you know when you're driving, (laughs) trying to keep trying to keep people straight. But once I sort of was introduced to all the characters, the audiobook, the narrator, which I should have looked up the narrator's name. But she was really good and did a really good job of all, you know, there's a lot of different voices. So she did a really good job with all of those. Yeah, I think
1: that can make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. Um, I was thinking about reading a book about Tudor England. But the narr—I was actually listening to it because we don't have it on physical form. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't. The narrator was just—I just couldn't. I was like, okay, I can't listen to him anymore. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
2: if you don't have a good narrator, yeah, yeah.
0: it makes a lot yeah. of difference.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, this this book does—you know—like I mentioned, it does have some magic in it and some myth. So it might qualify for the, you know, book about magic prompt as well. But yeah, definitely made me more excited about my upcoming trip. Thanks for listening to the Books and Bytes podcast. To learn more about Books and Bytes bingo, visit us at jesspublib.org forward slash books hyphen bytes. Our theme music is The Breakers from the album In Close Quarters with the Enemy by Scott Whitten. You can learn more about Scott and his music at his website, adoreforadesk.com.